It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers. Bound with two chains and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Get, get up quick, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals, and Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and the second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking. And when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said. And then he left for another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. He had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They now joined together and sought an audience with him. After securing the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply.
On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, this is the voice of a god, not of a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God continued to spread and flourish. This is the word of the Lord. Oh, well, thank you for reading us, reading for us, Jill. Good morning, everyone. My name is Darren. It's a privilege uh, to come under God's word with you uh, this afternoon. Uh, it's a story. I hope it got your imagination. It really does have everything. Uh, we've got public beheadings. We've got a prison break to deal with and the small matter of a king who's eaten by worms. Um, it, it's got a terrible beginning, but it's got a glorious ending. And, uh, well, we see three things. We see that opposition is assured. We see that God delivers and protects, and we also see that God judges. Uh, please keep that passage open, and before we continue, let me pray. Father, thank you uh, for your word, and as we examine it, I pray you would guide us and open the eyes of our hearts that we would trust you in your sovereignty, in your providence, and Lord, and in your perfect and good rule. They would give us peace and trust in your Son. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, folks, uh, one of the few disappointing things about growing up in Northern Ireland was that we were absolutely pumped in every sport by absolutely everyone. I mean, I'm not joking. You name it, men's, women's sports, it didn't matter. Uh, we gave up watching the Olympics in my house a long time ago, uh, pump, pumped by the English pumped by the Scottish, pumped by the Welsh. Let's not talk about our friends from the Southern Hemisphere. Um, we still, the people of Ireland claim half of Siobhan Hockey's silver medal uh, in the Olympics. That's about as close as we feel it gets. And uh, it was only later on when we started to become okay at some sports that I, that I realized that the people of Ireland had, when it came to sport, cultivated this deep sense of pessimism. That, that there was no way, even if we were winning, even an unassailable lead, you would still feel a deep sickness deep in your stomach that there was some way you were somehow going to manage to lose the game or the match. Uh, even from an unassailable position, we would snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. And well, why am I telling you this? Well, I suppose I think in some way, I'm sure this early church had a deep sense of pessimism of how they were ever going to get out of the predicament that they were in. But we see in this passage, even at the, at the very heart of it, is that there is a tyrant who is executing, this, executing the leaders, and yet even in this dire situation, he cannot stop God's word going out. However bleak the situation may appear, we have the encouragement in Acts that God's word always goes out and always triumphs. And the message for us, well, this afternoon is it has not changed. The message is still the same, God's word going forward. But we do see very clearly that opposition is assured. In the first four verses, we are, we are told and we could empathize that this young church probably thought, hang on a minute, there's no way we're getting out of this one. There's no way we are winning this scenario. Uh, we've had a good run. Because look at what has just happened. James, the brother of John, has been put to death by public beheading. Um, and of course, you would know that James was the brother of John. They were two of the three of the inner circle of, of disciples. 
And we're told in the next verse that King Herod, seeing that it pleased the Jews, he arrested Peter as well. And we're told that Peter is on trial uh, the very next day. Herod, it seems, is seeking to ingratiate himself with the Jewish establishment to maintain the peace. And some of us who are more familiar with the, the Gospels will know that this is exactly what Jesus promised James and John. Jesus had warned them in Mark chapter 10. There had been a row about the best seats in the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus tells them um, in the next slide, please. He says, you will drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to see that my right hand or left is not for me to grant what he tells James and John back in Mark is that you guys are going to share in my suffering as well. And here we see that promise coming true. Sadly, James is killed, and we know that later on John would be exiled into Patmos. And well, for Peter, you don't need to be a detective to figure out uh, wh how things are looking for him. He's not just been brought in for questioning overnight. No, the hangman has been summoned. It's muskets at dawn. Um, he is one night away from being killed, just like the other senior pastor, James, had been. And for this young church, it, they must have really been tempted to despair against the overwhelming power of this empire, this new organization. How would it survive? And if you're anything like me, if you've been a Christian for a few years, you're perhaps tempted to look around the world and think, how on earth are we going to continue uh, as we have to contend for the gospel more and more, as we see um, renowned pastors falling into sin or renowned pastors um, getting ill and passing away? And you, you could be tempted to think at times, will the church survive our own lifetime? What would this young community of Jesus do in all of its powerlessness against the armed might of Rome. And I suppose it is all too easy for us, isn't it, to forget who really is managing the team. But we have to remember what have we seen in the book of Acts up to now. We see that Jesus has risen. He is declared as Lord of the living and the dead. He has ascended into heaven, and he is now sending out his work, backed up and attested with signs and wonders, and Jews have converted. Uh, Non-Christians are coming to a living faith in the living God for the very first time, for he is a mighty Savior. And, you know, Luke is, writes passionately. He is determined to show us throughout this book of Acts that the Word of God cannot be stopped. It's like a laser-guided missile. It's like an avalanche coming down a mountain. It's like the tide coming in. You, you know, you resist it at your peril. And we have our own chapter headings in our English and Chinese Bibles, but Luke um, segmented his book without those. And interestingly, the theologians think he framed it in six sections that show that God's Word was always going forward. You might remember from Acts 6, verse 7, the Word of God continued. Or from a few weeks ago, 931, that the church had peace and multiplied. Or 1224, as we just read, the Word of God increased. And a few later on, in 16.5, the, the church was strengthened and increased in number. In 19.20, the word of God increased. Luke shows passionately that in good times and bad, and even in the direst straits this young church could find itself in, God's word was always going forward, and God was always growing his church and, but yet Luke is very careful and very deliberate to show at each stage of growth the church has always met with opposition. 
Uh, William Taylor makes a good point on, on, on this um, passage. And he, he says it's very easy to think that this part of Acts is all, um, it, it, the book of Acts is the Apostle Paul show. He was the missionary to the Gentiles. But we forget who started the work to the Gentiles. It was, of course, Peter. And it's easy to think that it was just perhaps um, grumpy Christians or annoying Christians who were persecuted. And I think probably the Apostle Paul was probably on the grumpier end of the spectrum. And perhaps people didn't really like him. Um, But we haven't seen much of Paul up to this stage. What we have seen is that Stephen has been stoned, James has been beheaded, and Peter is put in prison. The church has always faced opposition to the message of the risen Lord. And it's a reminder for us, I think in this passage especially, that opposition can come from the outside. It can come from the state. It can come from the establishment. In many parts of the world, the state and establishment are active in violent oppression against Christians. But it's also a reminder, as we see here, that Herod was acting on the behest of the Jewish establishment, the religious establishment, It's easy for the secular to persecute the church because they don't have God's spirit. They don't understand us. But as we see, I think, more and more in the 21st century, the church having to contend for the gospel from within as we face opposition from within, not to be perhaps so biblical in our views. And here we see, well, this group, they feel their power base is threatened by this new group of Christians. So they're encouraging Herod to get rid of the early church as they had tried to get rid of Jesus. But the reminder is the opposition is always there. And it's a challenge to us, I think, to prepare for this, to to count the cost. I appreciate uh, when we finish the Christianity Explored course, one of the things I like in the final session is we challenge all the participants before they put their trust in Christ to count the cost. For if you only become a Christian for the theological blessings that Christ gives you, and, and of course there, there are many, they're abundant and they're glorious, or if you only become a Christian because of the material blessings you think Jesus will give you, when opposition, when difficulties, when trial comes along, the temptation will be that you'll be knocked for six, you'll be, you'll be knocked sideways. Um, and, and I think perhaps um, in 21st century Hong Kong, it's probably very unlikely that we're going to be met with physical or violent oppression. Well, we, we pray and we hope we do not. Um, but it's more likely, I think, that we will feel more metaphorical. Uh, metaphorical examples of resistance. Um, perhaps um, if you become a Christian, you might notice that... Um, your friendships begin to cool. If, if you start sharing about your newfound faith at work, you invite people to the St. Andrew's Carol service. You perhaps start giving out tracts or inviting people to Christianity Explored. You might find that your, your line manager or your boss would say, I'd just rather you could keep those views to yourself. Uh, or they might just say faith is a private matter. I can't imagine what it's like to be a Christian at high school or at university these days. I don't think you'd have to be one for too long to be considered an oddball. But, so we might not face it physically, but I do think we'll feel it metaphorically. And if you're like me, I'm very risk-averse, conflict-averse. I don't like to be punched. And if I feel like I'm getting metaphorically punched in the face, the temptation is that I'm just going to shut up. I'm going to start being quiet or I'll change the message If I haven't prepared for this, I'll stop inviting. And sadly, I think it would be very easy to get to the place, like many Christian groups, where we just stop sharing the gospel and we stop living it out. 
because we don't, we, don't, we don't want to, to be hurt. We stop saying the hard things. But of course, we should not do this. And this is why we need to keep meeting and encouraging one another. We have a great encouragement this afternoon as we see not just that opposition is assured, but that God delivers and God protects. And it's almost comical here in the, in the middle part of our text as we see that Peter is miraculously delivered. Look at, at great length, describes the level of security in great detail that Peter is under. I wonder, do you, do you see it there? Uh, in verse, five, he, um, verse 6, he begins, um, he's sleeping between two soldiers. There's sentries at the, the door. It's four groups of four. That's 16 soldiers altogether who were on shift. There's an enormous iron gate. Peter's chained to two of them as he sleeps. It reminds me of one of those like heist movies or bank robbing movies like Ocean's Eleven where they set up the odds that are just so astronomically high. There's no way they're going to be able to do this. And here is Luke giving us in great detail the level of security that he is under. And of course, the soldiers knew this as well. We are told that when they awoke and saw that Peter had escaped, there was no little disturbance or commotion. And after Herod interrogated them all, they too were put to death. Luke is showing that Peter's in the ancient equivalent of a supermax prison or one of the infamous prisons of the ages, Guantanamo Bay or Alcatraz or something like that. And it's, it's very matter of fact. It says, well, the, the angel had to wake him up by poking him in the side. I can't imagine sleeping well the night before my trial, but, but Peter is. And uh, the amazing miracle is now that he was on the inside, now he's being freed. He was naked, now he's being clothed. It was dark, and now it is light. He was under guard by these 16 men, but now he is under the protection of an angel. Now the doors of the prison are open. Luke wants us to be convinced that this is indeed a miracle of God. Peter doesn't really understand what's going on. He thinks he's having a vision. But then in verse 11, he comes to his senses and he says, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people would hope would, hope would happen. Here is God preserving the man that he said he would, that he would build his church upon for the purpose of the advancement of his word. It can't be stopped, folks. But I think the problem with this passage is, well, you think, hang on, that's not very fair. It, it would be wrong of me, it would be wrong of us to take away the central application for this. As if you put your trust in Jesus, he will deliver you from your trials, from your prison, from the difficulties in your life. Because here we have James, he's lost his head, but now Peter has been set free. And you think, well, hang on, that's not very fair. What, what on earth is, is going on? Well, this is what Christians and the theologians, we call God's providence, how God acts in his good and perfect will, sometimes also known as his sovereignty. And God will always act as, as he wants, for God is perfect, but sometimes he delivers and sometimes he does not. And we see that Peter here was delivered for this time and season, but of course he would face difficulties later on in his life. But it's a remarkable deliverance 
And Peter, well, he goes to the house of this person called Mark, and they're inside praying. Uh, We're told that that they were praying fervently. And uh, this servant, Rhoda, who's known by name, she comes. She hears Peter knocking at the door. I love to imagine that Peter's in like the orange prison uniform. He's saying, let me in quickly. Um, And she goes back and tells the group who are praying for Peter's deliverance. And ironically, they say to her, you're out of your mind. It just must be Peter's angel. What they're praying for has come true, and they still don't believe it. She goes back, brings Peter in, and of course, there's a huge commotion. There's great joy, for they realize what they've just been praying for has happened. In fact, there's so much commotion that it says that Peter had to silence them with his hands because he probably didn't want more policemen coming to the house to take him away. It's a a remarkable story. But I think the takeaway for us as a church, more than just thinking about God's providence and his sovereignty, is that against the authority of Herod and his sword and his prisons, against the authority of the state, the church could turn to the only power that the powerless have, and that is the power of prayer. And Christians from the very first days, they met together to pray. Peter was kept in prison before, and they had met to pray we are still told today to meet together earnestly to pray. Stretched out prayer is the word that is used here. It's like a a verb of running to God by the whole church. Now, I'm delighted that so many people in St. Andrews want to come to groups and to courses and events to, to learn and grow together. But if we're honest, we know that the church prayer meeting is not as popular as that. It's, it's more challenging to get people to come along and pray together. But can I encourage us, um, for those of us perhaps who are sitting here today and we think, well, if God is so sovereign and acts so providentially, why on earth do Christians need to meet to pray if it's already all been decided? Well, let me ask you the question. How do you think the gospel is going to advance in your workplace, in your family? How do you envisage that they are ever going to be converted? Um, God will and can acts as he wants but he always calls on his church to pray that his word would go forward and go out and that men and women could be uh, converted as the church is built up. Let me ask you another question. What would it look like for us as a church to face opposition? What would it look like for you to face opposition as the friendships start to cool, as your head or your line manager or your trustee, he just seeks to block you or put pressure on you for being a Christian or trying to live it out? We need to keep meeting together to encourage one another uh, to seek God's peace, to seek God's protection, to keep going because we know it's not easy to be a Christian and there is opposition to us. And we need to support each other by, by praying for God's word to go out and praying for the church to be built up and strengthened within. I'd love to invite you to the monthly prayer meeting on Monday week or we have Wednesday prayer online or, and we even have a special focus group, who, a group of people who just love Myanmar and they want to see God's work go out there and, you know, get, get involved, come and pray. So we, we see that opposition is assured. We see that God can deliver, but the church's response is to pray. But thirdly, and quite dramatically, we see God's judgment. It began in death. It ends in death. Here we have Herod Agrippa, and we get a little political insight and history into the region. Luke calls him Agrippa, which was the, the name that Emperor Caligula had given uh, to, to Herod. And just if there's any confusion, there's three Herods in the New Testament. You have 
we have Herod the Great. We've met him. He was the one that executed the babies when Jesus was born, right? And we've met Herod Antipas. He was involved in Jesus' trial. He was the uncle of this guy, who's also the grandson of Herod the Great. Um, but the apple really hasn't fallen far from the tree. You know what kind of family this is, is going on. They all seem to be tyrants. And he's gone up to Caesarea, where there's some international incident going on. There's a big row about food. It suggested that Herod was limiting the supply of food to these people in Tyre and, 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 and Sidon. And Luke describes all of this in great detail. So we know that he's basing it in history. And we're told he tells us about Herod's robes, and he goes to this festival. And the good and the great come out to see it. And perhaps even Cornelius was there because he was from Caesarea, and, uh, or he lived there. And uh, we're told something very strange happened. The people, the good and the great, cried out, this is not the voice of a man, but of a God. And uh, Herod did not rebuke them. And so because he took honor from God, God usurped his life and honor and uh, we're told rather dramatically he was eaten uh, by worms. And uh, we'll come back to that in a moment. But of great interest, I find this week, was the Roman and secular historian Josephus also uh, records the death of Herod Agrippa. I'm going to read it to you now, and I want you to see if you can spot the similarities between Luke's account and this account. On the second day, a festival, he put on a garment made wholly of silver and of a contexture truly wonderful and came into the theater early in the morning, at which time the silver of his garment being illuminated by the fresh reflection of the sun's rays upon it shone out after a surprising manner and was so resplendent as to spread a horror over those that looked intently upon him. And presently, his flatterers cried out, one from one place and another from another, though not for his good, that he was a god. Upon this, the king did neither rebuke them nor reject their impious flattery. A severe pain arose in his belly when he was carried inside and died five days later. Isn't that remarkable? The, the same event that historians wrote down uh, that's written in the Bible, so Luke knows, show, wants to show us that what is here is, is really true. Now, just an aside for a moment, this thing with the worms, okay? Remember that Luke was a doctor. Um, I do not think what is going on here is that worms were bursting out of Herod's, Herod's stomach. That would be absolutely terrifying. Um, there was a famous British um, surgeon called Rendell Short, and he wrote a book about biblical medicine and diseases, and the, the suggestion is more that this is some form of um, um, intestinal parasite uh, that took uh, Herod and formed a knot um, in his intestines, as was not uncommon, due to the water um, in the Middle East in the first century. Um, but more important, I think, than this dramatic death of this man who stood opposed to God is how this story ends in verse 24. Do you see it there? The most important verse in the passage, that the word of God continued to spread and flourish. This is the theme this autumn, if you've been coming to our teaching on Acts. Jesus overthrowing his enemies and his plan and his word cannot be stopped. This story starts with Peter in jail, James is dead, Herod is in tyranny, and it ends with Herod dead, Peter is free, and the word of God is triumphing. And as Alex introduced our service this morning with that great hymn writer, Spufford, the application for us is that if it really is all well with our soul, if Jesus really has risen from the dead and he promises that he will raise you one day too, it means that you can trust him. 
It will be the answer to anxiety. It will be the answer to discontentment. And you'll be able to trust God in the place that He has you. And if you trust God in the place that He has you, because He is good and He is sovereign, you'll realize that taking risks for God is not quite as risky as it seems if God is in control and is building this church. As the great missionary doctor to East Africa said, David Livingston, he said, I am immortal until my work is accomplished. I am immortal until my work is accomplished. It means that he knew nothing could really hurt him until God decided to, take, to end his life. He knew there was no place more dangerous than outside of God's will for his life because he knew that God was good and sovereign and God would keep him uh, in any circumstances until he achieved his purposes through him. And so what am I saying does that mean for us? Well, it means if we do know that all is well with our soul, we can take risks for God. Now, I'm not saying don't go out after lunch and get arrested or try to get yourself killed. Please don't break any laws and say that the pastor at St. Andrews told you to do this. But it does mean that we can have courage in the workplace, at the school gates, at the mother's group, to keep on speaking about Jesus, to keep on praying for the Bible, to keep reading the Bible and trying to obey it, keep coming along here, keep being generous, keep coming to the prayer meeting. For unlike a young boy growing up pessimistically about Northern Irish sport, if you're a Christian, you no longer have to be pessimistic, for you have assurance that you are on the winning side, and that is the greatest hope, that because Jesus has risen from the grave, that everything one day will be okay that we can put our trust in him. The only risky place to be in this life is like Herod, standing against God, and you do it at your peril. So let us take great confidence in hope that his word cannot be stopped, and he is always for and with his people. Amen. Let me pray. Father, thank you that you're indeed for us. Thank you that your word confirms it. And thank you, Father, that you are the one who is always building his church. I pray, Father, that we would take confidence in our mighty Savior and King and that you would help us, Lord, to live this out with courage and with great integrity, but also with grace and peace. Help those of us, Lord, who really do feel like we are in the furnace right now and struggling to see beyond it. We pray, Father, that you would give us faith and courage to overcome each and every trial, Father, that, that, that you bring to us. And Father, I pray we could take great encouragement in all that you do. For we know that all is well with our soul. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.